you are in the Grotto Pod. We are in the Grotto Pod. We're all here in the Grotto Pod. And for once, there's plenty of room. Oh, I love there's it. There's plenty of room. we got a special uh, special one-off episode for you today. I, uh, Larry Rosen, of course, the voice you are hearing. I'm here with uh, Bridget Quinn. Hello. Who today will be doing double duty. Yes, I will. As not only podcast co-host... You know, I don't think I want to use the word podcast anymore. I just want to use Grotto Pod. I want to okay. brand that as quickly as possible. Let's get tattoos. No, I can't. Because oh, you're Jewish? Nope. <laughs> just a j- <laughs> There's some Jewish thing about not getting tattoos. There is, actually. See? but uh, You think I just said that. But... That's not why. Actually, okay. it's because I get keloids in my skin. Oh, yes. You definitely don't want to do it then. If you look closely someday when I'm not paying attention at my mm. left ear, you will notice scarring. You pierced your ear in the 80s. A lot of times, mm-hmm. I actually had to have surgery oh my God. to get the knob removed from my ear. For a long time, people only spoke to my left ear. It was if I were a woman with very large breasts, only they were attached to my left ear. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of information. It is a lot of information. I'm glad it's gone. Anyway, today, uh, Bridget, or BQ as we like to call her, will mm-hmm. be doing double duty as not only co-host, but also author. subject. Author. Yes. It's Finally. her turn to shine. Uh her uh, her book, Broad Strokes, 15 Women Who Made Art and Made History in That Order, will be released on March, March 7th, which will be, uh, I think it's already released. Oh, so great. In, it's out. In the Grotto Pod world, it's out. Uh, how Run, are, don't walk. How are the accolades so far? Uh, pre-publication, pretty sure, good. Sure. I, I've been fairly amazed, actually. You know, um, to back it up a little bit, kind of the plan, the thing we were really excited about was, you know, we live in San Francisco. We thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. Well, I don't think that was just in San Francisco. Yeah. And so, um, and because my publisher, Chronicle Books, is also in San Francisco. So Mm -hmm. a little bit of a bubble. And we thought it would be the year of the woman. It would be a crest of a giant wave and you'd be on top of it. Exactly. So then when that did not happen... I was worried, thinking, well, is a book about women artists and kind of women power going to be appropriate to the new regime? But guess what? It's even more appropriate. The resistance. Mm -hmm. The resistance has happened, Mm -hmm. and they're psyched. So I don't know if that's why, but Publishers Weekly in January chose it as a top 10 book in biography and memoir for spring. That was exciting. And I was between sandwiched between Richard Ford and Roxane Gay. Which both and, and oh, each fantastic in, and each in their own way significant to you. It's true. More significant, I would imagine, than if it had been some random well-known authors. It's true, actually. Surprisingly, Richard Ford has written two books that uh, feature my hometown, which is not a place many people know about. And we're going to go to your hometown. All right, toot sweet. Excellent. Um, before we do that, though, for our listeners. Uh, so the book is it was recommended as biography memoir, but it doesn't read exactly like a memoir. Give us an idea of what the book is, because it's an interesting hybrid that when I was reading it, what struck, struck me the most was, huh, this is a, an interesting choice that I appreciate, not being an art historian. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to go that way? With the memoir part of it? Right. It just sort of... And it, actually, before you do that, yeah. break down what it is. Okay. Well, first of all, the book is based on a moment I had as an undergraduate where I got the Bible of art history. Undergraduates get H.W. Janssen's The History of Art, which featured 16 women artists in 800 pages, something like that. 
which I noticed as an 18 or 19-year-old, and went and spoke to one of my professors, the only female professor I had, and she laughed and said, you have the brand new edition. There were no women in it before now. <laughs> and so I just got interested in women artists. Who were they? I looked up some of them that were in Janssen. Some interested me, some didn't. So that was, believe it or not, since grad school, I've carried around this idea of writing a book like this about these women artists. You know, I had, it seems like the kind of book where you'd had it in it, your head for a long completely. time. Completely. And the more I found women I was interested in, whose work I was interested in, I should say, the more I became kind of obsessed about them, the way some boys I knew, you know, went and bought vinyl albums, the EP, the Japanese edition, the et cetera, et cetera. I would buy everything I could find by these women I had trouble finding things on. It's funny. I was just listening to a podcast this morning with Judd Apatow on it, mm. and that is exactly how he described his interest in comedians. Yeah, exactly. Like he'd follow them and to draw a different analogy as if they were sports stars. It was exactly the same. You know, and oh, remember, so and so, oh, he's got a pilot coming out, and oh, what's he doing stand-up, that sort of thing. And remember, back in the 80s, did, I remember the 80s. Yeah. We didn't Very have the clear. internet, or I did not have it. Thank God. Similar yeah. times. So I, I had to actually make an effort to find out anything about these people. And when, when I'd find something, it was like a treasure. So it just sort of organically came about that I wanted to write about different women artists who had meant a lot to me in different points in my life. And that's the only reason those 15 are chosen. Mm-hmm. And there's, I said, 16 in Janssen. There's only 15 in my book. You have to read the book to find out why. Is there a crossover? Are they the same 16 that were in Janssen or now no. in your book? No, not at I, all. I didn't think so because some are pretty I mean, recent. Yeah, it, there are a couple that were also in Janssen. But they, the only reason they're in the book is because they had some meaning to me. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the memoir piece in each chapter. But it's very small. It's a cool. It's a cool feature because, I mean, frankly, I w- probably wouldn't be able to read a book on any artist not being an art historian guy. Well, the other uh, hoped-for thing about the book is to make art history a little less effet, a little less affected, and make it like reading about your favorite sports star or reading about your favorite band. Because art has this kind of exclusive... yeah, I don't know. I don't know. High-minded aspect to it that people think it's not approachable, and if it's good, it should be approachable. Especially you when can, you're digging back to like the 15th century. Yeah, completely. And it's just a matter of how you talk about it. And in my experience, because I taught high school for many years, and I taught as an adjunct professor at university in art history, people really love what they know about. They don't know what they like; they like what they know. And the more they know, the more they like it. And it's just a matter of saying, "Hey, here's why this is cool." Yeah. Okay, wait. I'm still getting my head around that term okay. phrase there. Yeah. People don't know what they like. People they like what they know. often say about art, okay. I don't know anything about art. But I know what I like. But I know what I like. Right. And my point is, you actually don't know what you like. You like what you know. The more you know about something, the more you understand why it's good or why you might like it or why it's of interest or why it's cool and not stupid. <clears throat> well, it's interesting. You know, next time I say it's interesting, we're going to play a little drinking game here. When I say okay. it's interesting, you got to drink. Whatever we both you have water have in front of you. Well, it's kind of boring. We'll be slosh, but in a different way mm-hmm. when we're done. Um, I'm just trying to get myself to stop saying it's interesting. But mm. what I was thinking was for someone, I mean, I guess you could say I do have an artistic background. You know, I've played music. I've, exactly. I write. But I'm one of these guys. I go to a gallery and it's purely aesthetic to me. I'm like, oh, those colors, you know, the thing, uh, 
what's the, in the Dorsey in, in Paris? Musée d'Orsay. Went through the whole thing, blah, 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 whatever. And they're like, oh, there's that Van Gogh self-portrait. You guys need me. I'll be here for the next half hour. You know, something about the blue. Just... Is it it just about the blue or is it about Van Gogh? Because this is why I was never going to be a great art historian and why I left my art history program to be a writer. I was interested in the stories. I was interested in the stories of the artists. I was interested in the stories of the works. I was interested in the historical stories of the time. And that interested me as much as the objects themselves. And, and that, that's not, like, cool in the art history world. It isn't, because it definitely comes through in the book, and it, it definitely seems that you've chosen the right subject matter then. I think it's seen as a little feeble-minded for high-minded art historians, <laughs> of which I am not one. Well, I think if you're a high-minded anything, you deserve to be taken a well, task by so. the feeble-minded. Maybe so. <laughs> but that's just me. <laughs> maybe so. And, I mean, I like to think of it a little bit as a kind of punk rock, um, I don't know, takedown of the Academy, not of the artists. I still mm-hmm. think Baroque painting is fucking awesome. Oh, I'm oh, supposed to say goes. that. You I'm know, so sorry. If you go on iTunes, oh, you'll see a, a clean lyrics logo next I'm to our... It's going to be so uh, much better. Next to our uh, <clears throat> little logo thing there, and I'm afraid it's not always true. That's the last time, I promise. We may have to go back I to told iTunes. my little brother that yeah. I was having this problem, and he Shout said... Shout out, BQ's little brother. Yeah, Brandon. He said to put a picture of my mom behind your head because we would never swear in front of Polly. <laughs> never. It really would work. I would never swear. And in the converse, if you put a picture of my mom behind your head, she would chastise us for not swearing enough. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> well, so you're taking a pretty, I don't want to say radical, you might want to say radical, but a different approach to this stuff that has to be born out of who you are and the, the whole soup that... Put to, you know, put you together. True. So let's go all the way back. All uh, right. I'll tell let's you what. Let's do it. To the, the amoeba stage. Uh, the amoebaic, amoeboic, protozoan. Maybe, see, I didn't uh, have a good a science education. Oh, my God. Here at the grotto, uh, you know, we walk around here and sometimes we walk around in soaking wet clothes because we walked here two hours in the rain. But usually we walk around and everyone's kind of got their own little shtick and their own little uh, persona, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. Bridges' persona is... Not entirely, but in part, the girl from Montana. Oh, this is so interesting. Oh, yeah, but that's because... You tell people you're the girl from Montana. And because I was trying to get this memoir sold about being oh, from Montana. Okay. That's how it all started. I want to get to that, but <clears throat> I also want to dig further back than that mm-hmm. to find out what created the woman who writes about artists mm-hmm. starting out in Great Falls, yep. Montana, mm-hmm. not even in town. Nope. Not living in town. Nope. Rural. Uh, we have a very sophisticated listening audience, so please explain to them the difference between being in town and being out of town. Uh, well, if you live two miles outside of Great Falls, Montana, you live, you know, in dairy land or ranching land or farming land, or you live in a trailer home. Mm. Uh, we did not, under like nothing like that. But yeah, uh, you know, we were not part of the. I don't know. I'm not saying that there was like super cool goes going super cool goings on, but the 70s in Great Falls, you know, sure. people knew what was going on a little bit. A little bit. And uh, yeah, I don't. I didn't feel part of that. I definitely felt uh, torn between. Mm, I don't really know how to put this. I don't want to use. Mm, I'm not going to use that word. Um, I definitely did not feel part of the kind of kids who were 
really psyched about going to 4-H and showing calves at oh, the sure. fair. And but you didn't, did you live on a farm? Was it a I lived on a farm? dairy. Mm-hmm. So it, was your father a dairy farmer? No, my father was a grocery store attorney and for Buttery Foods, which was started by my grandfather. And you just happened to have a little dairy farm there on the side. No, we lived on dairy land. So the Ayrshire Dairy was owned by the Mitchells, and we had a house on in the fields of the dairy. So my dad wasn't a dairy farmer. Okay, but I lived on the dairy. Did you have to work on the dairy? I did sometimes. I didn't have to, but I wanted to. And my best friend was a daughter of the dairy farmer. So yeah, I grew up feeding the calves and killing gophers and all the usual stuff. Gophers shooting guns. Shooting guns. Yeah. So you and my mm-hmm. wife We had a skeet shooter at the, uh, at the, uh, on our back porch. Well, an upbringing like that actually allows for a lot of imagination to take hold. Definitely. And I guess I think the most important thing is people in New York often said to me in grad school, uh, almost everyone I went to grad school with went to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and a lot of the really good liberal arts schools like Oberlin and Carleton. Uh, and I did not. Lafayette. Yeah. I, I so many good ones. Is that where you went? No, it's where my son goes. Oh, yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. Uh, and I went to a good school, I thought, UC Santa Barbara. But I definitely had a chip on my shoulder about being from a state school and maybe not being prepared and not, what was going, not knowing what was going on the same way you other people did. mentioned that in the book a few times. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I think in our interview with Connie, I started to say that, that I get really uptight if people correct my grammar, partly no. because I feel... Like being from Montana, I always carried that with me that somehow I didn't know what was going on when other people did. doesn't mean it's true. That's my own shtick. But people would say to me, oh, you're so self-invented. And I actually wasn't self-invented. <laughs> my older, one of my older brothers is a painter. That seems a little patronizing. Oh, it totally is. That's so New York though, right? Like yeah. anything beyond the Hudson. <laughs> when you go back to Mont, do you still have people in Great Falls now? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. When you go back there now, when you were talking about it, it occurred to me that you grew up out in the country, you know, the rural America pre-methamphetamine epidemic. Oh, totally, yeah. Has it changed in that way? Has it gone, I don't know. It gone down the tubes out there? I'm, I would imagine it has. What bad stuff happened in those I mean, I have to now? say, I've known some meth heads in my life, and yeah. they were all Californians, so I don't <laughs> really want to go there. But, yeah, I'm sure, that, I'm sure that's true. I don't have any way of knowing if that's true or not. But the thing that's important that I want to say is that when I was growing up, there was a lot of reverence for art and for writers and for poets. And I think part of that... In your house? No, in Montana. In Montana. And in my house. Well, I think that's no secret. Yeah. Montana is a place that's known for its writers. Mm -hmm. And I grew up around people who were painting, who were making art. My cousin, Terry Mimna, is a very successful Montana artist, probably one of the most successful Western artists in America. However... I was about to say that, you know, in writing, I feel like there's almost a whole school of these Montana guys, but it's almost exclusively male. Right. And so my memoir, I had hoped, not published, Larry. I know the feeling. Yeah. Uh, was going to be a kind of corrective to that, a girl's view of growing mm-hmm. up in Montana and growing up in a place in Montana that is not the Montana of fly fishing. Tons of fly fishing. Lots One of, fly of my fishing. I keep mentioning my brothers. I think I need to say I have six brothers. So that's why they're not the same people doing all these amazing things. One of my brothers was a fly fishing guide for years. My older brothers all were fly fishermen. Uh, so there is fly fishing and everything else masculine. Bow hunting, hunting with guns, <laughs> whatever thing you want. I also grew up where most of the Minutemen missiles were buried. 
So there was definitely that kind of power. And this is Cold War era, so there Completely. had to be sort of a little pall of nervousness. Oh my God, for sure. Town. And a big Air Force base in mm-hmm. town also. So, uh, but I wanted to write something that was a little bit counter narrative to this Montana macho deer hunting culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did, and uh, so far, you know, it's so not, far not so much. Not really sold. Um, but now, I mean, and I know there was, you know, the, the path from the dairy farm to UC Santa Barbara wasn't entirely linear. No. Now, though, looking back, I mean, you, I know, you know, I'm, I, I hang around with you quite a bit. And I know mm-hmm. you tell people you're In from Montana. In this tiny little In room. In this tiny little room. Yeah. Like, you are from Montana as I am Jewish. Yeah. That's what we are. Yeah, I am a little like that. So, you got out. Yeah. But I don't, I, I don't think it would be accurate to say that you resent Montana or you don't feel a love for Montana? No, not at all. I mean, we still have a little place in Montana, my husband and I, and most of my siblings still live there. I go back every year. So you're supposed to disavow it. Why do I tell people I'm from Montana? You know why? Because I don't want them to think I'm a Californian for some reason. Hey. I know. I don't know what that is. I actually, I... I haven't lived in Montana since I was 14. So it's a little bit of bullshit. <laughs> no. And it's also who I am and who my family is. And, I mean, I met my husband on the campus of UC Santa Barbara, and what I liked about him was that he was from Ohio. Hmm. I don't know what it is. So the ambivalent relationship is with California, not with Montana. Or it was at one time. Now I just love California. Well, I love San Francisco. Yeah, you don't actually live in California. I know. I love San Francisco, I have to say. And as, I, I did not love Southern California. As I learned when my son and I took college tours back east, yeah. people who are from San Francisco say they're from San Francisco. People yes. from everywhere else in California say they're from California. For yes. better or worse. That is part of the bubble that we live in, that sort of smug pride, like, hey, check me out. Have you ever noticed if you tell people you're from San Francisco when you're outside of San Francisco, they'll say, Where? And then I tell them the neighborhood, and what they mean is, then they say, oh, you're actually from the city. They mean San Carlos. They mean the Bay Area. That's how I met my wife. She, uh, we were, I was in Seattle, and she said, someone said oh, this is, I'm not going to say her name on my podcast. Okay. but oh, uh, I do. Uh, she's from San Francisco. I went, really, where? And she said, Fremont. Yeah, see, said, we don't. That's not San Francisco. We don't consider that. But I gave San her a second Francisco. chance, and, and look at you here now. Here we are, twenty-five years later. I know us too. Wow, crazy! It is crazy. So tell me a little bit about this uh, nonlinear path that got you to uh, UC Santa Barbara. Of all places, UC Santa Barbara. Oh uh, well, back then, Known in the parlance as UC Surfboard, by the way. Yeah. Well, speaking of college tours, so first of all, my I am the you're a, a- rebel, right? I was a bit of a rebel. Mm-hmm. I'm the, well, first of all, I'm the eighth of nine children. So my dad was going to retire early. To take early retirement, he had to make a little bit of money. So he took a job in Southern California. And my little brother and I had oh, not graduated from high school yet. That's how you ended up in yes. Dana Point. So I was in Dana Point for three years and was very unhappy because I thought I was leaving the dairy farm for San Francisco. Oh. And I ended up in Orange County under Reagan. You know, we left... A uh, small town northeastern Pennsylvania for Orange County right about the same time. And we thought we were leaving for uh, a Frankie and Annette movie. Right. Neither entirely correct. Not so much. So I was pretty freaked out by Southern California. It's a tough, it was a tough place to land at that point in time unless you fit the suit. And you probably could have outwardly fit the suit. No. No, I was super pale and had oh, all the wrong pale. clothes. Yeah. And I now have this terrible Southern California accent that I will never lose, but I <laughs> sa- didn't have it, which made me a, a little bit of an outcast. Completely. I like and to say I, sh- I showed up four foot eight, 
Uh, oh, yike. With a Jufro, giant glasses, and a big vocabulary, and there was no amount of sports that could save me. At I that know. Point. Well, no the vocabulary was the killer because, that especially the killer. in the 80s, you were supposed to have like five words that you just said. Dude. Like that. And uh, so that was hard. I hated it. But, of course, for me, looking back, I have the relationship with Orange County, I think, that you have with Montana. I will not disavow it. I have really good friends there. I see really good things right. there. Right, right. When I go there, my friends show me things that I didn't know were there. Right, exactly. I get and under the surface. But that I, surface, boy, it's Same. Actually, when I, go, when I go, there's so many cool things. My son, who's a surfer, loves Southern California, and he's really... We have good friends in Encinitas, mm-hmm. and I mean, it's super cool there. And that's it like is. a real culture. But I was in Dana Point, which in the 80s was, it was kind of like an afterthought. In between yeah, it was kind things, of neither here very, nor there. Right. It was neither here nor there. It didn't have the old San Clemente cool. It was south of Laguna. So yeah, it didn't have the Laguna Beach thing. Diego. I was really into Laguna Beach because I thought Laguna was kind of arty. It was. Yeah. And so I liked that. You could see foreign movies there. So mm-hmm. I was always into that kind of stuff. Anyway... Long story short, to circle back around to looking at colleges, back then you just applied to UC and then they sent you somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, sp- I Wait. think, or you listed it, I think. You could, like, you applied to UC, it was one application, and then you could list your top five. And if you had a certain GPA, you could supposedly go to one of those yeah, schools. I think that's what- it was something like that. So Santa Barbara was, I think, third on my list. I'd never been there. That's where I got in, and I just showed up. I had never gone. You showed up. Well, I, I knew nothing about you it. You know, as far as the UC goes, I actually, oh, it was awesome. I actually had got into Irvine because mm-hmm. I was afraid to leave home and then just didn't go. But, that was wise. Um, that's a different story. When I publish a book, yes. we'll discuss that. Okay. But Santa Barbara, as UCs go, I mean, that's it's a pretty fun one. It was very fun, and there was an awesome punk rock scene, believe it or not, in Santa Barbara, or at least in Isla Vista, UCSB's mm-hmm. little community of scary rundown old motels. and We used to call it a den of sin. Yeah. Oh, totally. It was so fun. So I immediately dug UC Santa Barbara and was totally happy there and, yeah, had a great time. And I was studying art history and wanted to go to grad school, wanted to move to New York City, and I did. Okay. Why art history then at that time? I have no idea. It's because, you know, art history, you think it's sort of the exclusive domain of, of what were you saying earlier about, you know, art critics being sort of highfalutin. I think it's two things. It's either, you know, pince-nez wearing... Annoying. What exactly is a pince-nez? It's like one of, isn't that one of those like? The eye, the, the or is that the monocle? Oh, pince-nez is the one where it's just the glasses fronts and they like stick on uh, your nose. Anywho, um, or I don't know, sorority girls who right, rich girls. Yeah. So, uh, but no, I think it was this. I think I really wanted to be an artist, and I was afraid to do that. And I was in this punk rock culture where everyone was in bands and everyone was making cool posters and clothing. And somehow I always felt nervous about doing it and I wanted to know how to do it. And it felt safe to just study it somehow. I think that's why I don't know for sure. And at this time, where's the writing? I was secretly writing. I, I wanted to be a writer. I didn't tell anyone. And I loved to read and I don't know why it doesn't make sense that I didn't study English. That's what a lot of writers do. So I did. Part of it was that I wanted to read what I wanted to read and didn't want to be told what to read. I don't really know. I, I just, oh, here's here. I remember this. I remember that I didn't know anything about art and I thought, well, I know something about reading and I can read, 
but how will I ever find out about these things unless I have classes in them? And, mm-hmm. and I didn't have any art training of any kind before college. So everything I learned, I learned from the day I started there, except for what I saw my brother paint and my cousin paint. Now, that's interesting. Drink. I yeah. said oh, that's drink. Okay. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Mm. Mm-hmm. Lovely water. Well, it's <sighs> delish. Uh, because as a punk rock person wedded to a DIY aesthetic, right. I would think you would go, I don't need training to appreciate art. A real punk rocker would think like that. <laughs> but I was a poser. <sighs> and even though I loved it, I loved it so much. I loved those people so much. I loved those bands so much. I loved everything about it. I mean, who I really loved were bands like X, bands like The Velvet Underground, where I felt like there was something else in addition to the music. Right. Those are the kind of people who, you know, John Doe came. We, we have to refer to John Doe. At least yeah. Once X. every other uh, yeah. podcast. John Doe came to L.A. to be a poet. Right. And I didn't Xine as so well. And so was Xine, yeah. And, oh, can we put my picture with John Doe up at if the, John Doe says it's okay, for the sure. Pod? Do I need to? I got my picture taken with John Doe a couple of years ago. Pretty awesome. If you don't know who John Doe is, you may as well just turn off the podcast. Yeah, now. or just look it up. Or, or just, just download it up. some music. Yeah. He's so great. And, uh, yeah, I, I, but, I, mean, I have no I mean, real explanation, But, actually. I mean, this idea that, that you were attracted then to bands who weren't fueled just by anger or angst. Or exactly. Or some need to sort of tear it all down in a Steve Bannon sort of way. And who were a little arty. Who were a little arty. Yeah, Which is actually kind of like, you know, that's not kind of like my whole position in the art history world. That's a little suspect position in the punk rock world as well. To be a little arty? To be a little arty, yeah, instead of... Fuel- a little political? Yeah, maybe. Or well, at least then it was, I think. Paul Simonon was an artist. You know, he made all their stuff in The Clash. Yeah. I think it was... Well, I could just be wrong. You know, and, and part of that could be, again, you know, it was pretty it was pretty macho, the original punk world. You know, it was pretty... It wasn't oh, jockey yet, but there was a lot of sure, anger. For sure, but the bands I really liked, like X, were not like They weren't that. very macho. I really liked Crass, X, X-Ray Specs. People with lyrics. Lyrics, girls. I liked girls in the bands. Yeah. Um, although I love the Velvet Underground, not that they're punk rock, but... Yeah. Well, Mo Tucker was a girl. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But and you Nico. were an early Riot girl. I was an early Riot girl, How for did you sure. feel? So you were a little... Uh, I, we were I actually ended up... for being Riot girls. I ended up playing in a band. You did? Yeah. That's right. And That's right. What was the name of the band? Umlaut Frenzy. <laughs> so a little arty. So literary. For, uh, yeah. I know. And a little German. Um, yeah, but I really dug the Riot Girls when they came out. I thought, oh, that is such a... When they came out. You know, when I when it came to my when awareness. Happened, yeah. Yeah, and I thought, that is so cool. I wish I was living in the Pacific Northwest, but by then I was living on the East Coast. Okay, so let's jump to the East Coast. Okay. Let's go there. All right. Well, where it's snowing right now, my kid just sent me this beautiful picture outside his dorm room window. Wouldn't you rather it was snowing than what it's doing here right now? Yes. It is raining torrents. I think I would have been more prepared for the walk here. We are not prepared. No. My kid's school was canceled today for rain. It's not raining that hard. (laughs) It was canceled. That's... I think all the schools in Marin were canceled. That's pretty funny. Yeah. You finish finish undergraduate. Mm Mm-hmm. Got this boyfriend. Different boyfriend. So oh, I, I thought it was the same guy. Uh, so I, mm, well, he'll never listen to this. My yeah. husband of twenty five plus years. Yeah. He, uh, um, 
he was a TA in a class that yeah, I took I in our history. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, we were friends for a long time after that, but my boyfriend at the time I was in the band with. Oh, okay. Um, and then we broke up right before. That works out well, usually. Yeah, exactly. So we broke up um, right before graduation my senior year, and the person I am married to now suggested I apply to the Institute of Fine Arts at NYU, which I would never have even known about. Now, the... Uh I'm just a small town girl from Montana. Correct. From a UC thing, really starts piling on. Well, I had no idea I'd get in. It was right. a total shock. I think everyone was shocked. My professors at Santa Barbara were shocked. The institute is the place for right. art history. Plus, you're all in at this point. There's no turning back. It's like, right? I can't be a lawyer. This isn't. I'm not going to be a lawyer at this no, point. No, art was, history or bust. Uh, yeah, I was never going to be a lawyer. I always wanted to go to grad school. I always wanted to get my PhD in art history. Who knows why? So I get to the institute and I think. I have made it. I almost used an expletive, and I did not. Good work. Good work. I, I have made it. I'm in New York City. I couldn't wait. I started going to see shows, by which I mean bands, and going to school every day at the Institute and feeling really scared by my peers and uh, not at all clear that I was prepared and I wasn't think, in many ways. Do you think that – did you turn that into a positive? This, were you fueled by being scared? That's twice I've talked about people being fueled. It must be um, where stuck in my head today. But. I, I mean, well, there's different I'll tell ways you. to deal with that. You could shrink. Oh, no, I didn't shrink. I, in fact, so one of the first weekends I was at the Institute and I studied all weekend long. I studied all the time because I felt like I was behind. I showed up wearing a butthole surfers T-shirt. Okay. And an older grad student came over to me and said, you can't wear that here. Because of the word butthole? I think so. And here's how unclear I was on the outside world. I thought I had like really nice gold colors and looked really good with my black leggings. I hadn't really remembered so that be- it said butthole. Because you're a punk rock, you flipped them off, right? No, I was like, no. I thought, oh. English style. I just didn't like understand. And it turned song. out he was from Portland, Mark Trowbridge, and he became one of my great friends. And he said, I get, I get what you're about. It's all cool, babe. <laughs> oh, man. But don't do it here because they'll take you down. Oh, I see. And so, and so he presented it in a way. You want to be taken seriously. Yeah, like that's not a good idea. And he was totally right. I actually had some pretty unpleasant interactions. But that with kind professors. of sucks too, because you want to have, especially at that age, the kind of conversation like, "Well, I'm just going to reinvent it then." Yeah, and and what's funny now is occasionally I run into people who haven't seen me in 20 years since the institute days, and they say, "Oh, I miss how goth you were," and I didn't know I wasn't yeah, trying to be goth. goth. I hated goth; that was not my thing. But I had dyed black hair, and I had a pierced nose, and I had all that stuff that and, they read as goth, and I didn't know. And it was are you goth. writing at this point? I am writing. I'm also taking classes at NYU in writing, and that and that's when I realized um, extension courses. I wasn't allowed to take actual courses. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm taking them with really good people like um, Carol M. Schwiller, who became my mentor, who was along with Grace Paley and Tilly Olson, one of the great voices of 70s women mm-hmm. short story writers in New York. And what are you writing at this point? Short stories, short stories. and terrible poetry, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, most, there's, you yeah. know, one of the problems in the world is there's too many poets. In the oh, my God. Poetry. And it didn't take me very long to realize I'm never going to be good enough to be a poet. Like, this is really magic stuff, and I'm not that good. I'm never going to be something enough no. to be a poet. I'm so not sure if, yeah. uh, I kind of want to leave this for the book, but I had a turning point moment where I could have gone on for my PhD and sort of had the benediction and blessing of you, a very important art historian and just decided, no, I have to, I have to go for it, man. That's I'm trying to write. That's cool, and you mentioned that in the book, right? Yeah. Uh, I forget which artist you're talking about, but was it at this time, though, that you – so you get exposure to these women artists. Uh, I forget which was the one that you went to see every day. Adelaide Labie-Guillard. Yeah, one of those old-timers. Really can't say it. Yeah. 
18th century woman painter during the French Revolution and before. And at this time, do you have any inkling? You know what I'd like to do someday is write a memoir that combines bios of these women. Never. But I had from very, very early the idea... What if so Vasari, the Italian painter and writer, wrote the first biographies of artists um, in the West? Everything I'm talking about only pertains to Western art and is kind of the promoter of genius in the Renaissance, which is a completely new idea. Uh, the Middle Ages, we didn't know who the artists were. We didn't have names for them. They weren't geniuses. They were just craftspeople. Mm-hmm. He starts this kind of modern idea of the cult of genius and using biography to explain the genius. And I thought at one time, I'm going to write a Vasari for women. And it's going to be the story, the lives of the artists, but the lives of the artistes. And at the time, you know how when you're younger, you come up with a million oh, great ideas. Totally. It's part of many it, it, So it didn't stand out from the others? Like, no, it I'm, did. It was always in my mind. And I kept collecting books and and obsessively, kind of like one of those crazy, nerdy guys buying all the vinyl. I was mm-hmm. like that with women artists. So I have a giant library of books on women artists from, well, from the late 19th century when sort of the, they are first being recovered to now. And, But at this point, when you made the switch and said, this is it, I'm a writer with a capital W, and I yep. imagine you said it was like that. I was like that. Sort of flowing. Yeah, I was totally like that. What did you imagine you would be writing? Fiction, Fiction. Novels. I think we all start there, right? Yeah. yeah. I really wanted to write novels because I love to read. Mm -hmm. Um, But right away I started getting journalist bits published Mm -hmm. for whatever weird reason. What kind of stuff? What what was your Um, beat? My beat, I'm embarrassed to tell you, was Gen X. (laughs) That had just (laughs) happened, and I looked the part. You know, you are the part, and so am I. Exactly. Nothing to run Exactly, and I was living in New York. Could be worse. We could be baby boomers. Yeah, for sure. So I wrote many, many, many sort of Gen X-y kinds of articles. But what I really wanted to do was write for Rolling Stone or write for uh, Spin, um, and that never happened. I was rock climbing one day, and... New York rock climbing. Yeah, so my husband built probably the first climbing gym in New York and had a climbing company, rock climbing company. And one of my early jobs was as a researcher and writer for the first X Games for ESPN. Oh, cool. So I did that probably four or five years, and he was the climbing judge for ESPN's X Games. So you guys were making it in New York. Yeah, I mean, we weren't making any money, but we were making but it in terms were... of coolie. Cool, coolness, cool cred. And cool cred. And he was also a preparator busy. at a gallery, a Soho gallery. So, yeah, we had a, we had a really cool life. We really did. And why'd you leave? Because... Writers don't leave New York. Um, they go to New York. Right. Well, I think we'd probably been married four or five years. And I'm still... I got married at 23, so I'm still in my mid-20s. Holy cow. I know, ridiculous. And that, I considered that kind of punk rock. That was mm. kind of like an Xene John Doe thing <laughs> in my mind. Except they were junkies and eventually split up. I know. Up. See, that's what's so ridiculous. It's like I'm actually being a good Catholic girl, but, but. <laughs> I like to recast it as something very cool. So we were never – I mean, we had no savings. We could barely get by, even though our lives were awesome. And it wasn't sustainable. It was not sustainable if we were going to grow and change. We also had the most amazing apartment in the world in New York. Yeah. Because we we were sort of caretakers for a rent controlled apartment that the gallery owner had had since 1972. Wow! And some stuff was happening in the building, and we realized we were not going to be able to stay. And it's kind of hard to cha- like to go down in New York from 
an amazing apartment is really depressing. <laughs> so um, my husband's from Ohio. He always wanted to go back west because he'd gone to grad school in Santa Barbara. And he decided to go to law school. That's what happens. You go to law school. Yeah. So he uh, got into law school in Portland. We moved to Portland and I taught at Portland State. Hated it. Years. Hated it. He hated Portland. I didn't hate it. Oh, Portland. I thought you hated Portland. Mm, I di- no, I didn't. He hated Portland. Was it hard to give up? What was, yes, what, everything. Well, was I mean, career-wise, what, or, or was that not a direction you wanted to go in? Because you were doing journalism, basically, which well, wasn't that, your plan. Well, that was his point, right? You're not really giving up anything because you want to write fiction. So write fiction. And so, and I was like, yes, that's what I'm going to do. And the one good thing about living in Portland, because Portland um, did not have what we found out was yes it's much cheaper there but the what you get paid is also much less i wonder if it's still like that i don't know but we ended up in the same exact situation but Mm. we were in portland instead of manhattan and so that was a little bit of a drag and i was still working for espn so i was at least getting east coast pay wages that's the word i was looking for but you were getting underpaid by espn and i know this because i too was working for espn totally underpaid i mean brutally just sort of the way it went right but it was a pretty cool gig at the same time i i mean i wrote the biographies of all the bmx riders all the rock climbers (laughs) all the you know it was fun and i went to the x games winter and summer every year and but it was a lot of work and i wasn't paid very well but i was paid better than working at the rock climbing gym or as an adjunct professor which i also did because the adjunct professors make no money. Oh, that was really hard. No money. But it was, but I liked it. And I, you know, Where were teaching, you teaching as an adjunct? Portland State. No, what were you teaching? Oh, art history, modernism, okay. which is 1750 to now. Like year-long course. Mm-hmm. But a survey course, so very. So the husband finishes the law school. Hates Portland. Well, he hated Portland so much that we had to leave and he finished in, in San Francisco. Oh, he did. He finished down here. Um you know, I lived in Seattle for a long time, and I always had this sense when I lived there that we were in the minor leagues. Now, I bet people that live in Seattle now don't feel the same way, right. or Portland, but I always had this sense that we were AAA, and San Francisco and New York were the big leagues. And right. as long as we stayed AAA, we, those people in the big leagues would have it on us. Here's what drove me crazy in Portland, is Portland thought they were the big leagues and had nothing but disdain for New York, and that drove me crazy. Well, I, I, I'm I'm fine with them being big league, but to not admit that New York is big league York. is really provincial. I'm sorry, that's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy talk. I've always felt like Portland and Seattle. I'm not. I, I, mean, I love Seattle, uh, but I always felt like their relationship with California and San Francisco mm-hmm. was sort of that of a nerd to a cheerleader. Yeah, I and mean, who's the nerd? Portland. They're the nerd, and okay. they're, they're obsessed with the cheerleader. Yeah, they know the cheerleader doesn't care about them, so they have to badmouth her all the time. That's skank. And if you ask the cheerleader about the nerd. Oh, he seems like a nice guy. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't really nice. know him. I don't know. Yeah. He helped me once with my homework. Yeah. So was that he's sort cute of like in a nerdy way. Envy. I don't know. I'm probably going to get, please send your cards and letters uh, to, to Larry. trash me. Yes. Uh, do we have a, what, do we have an email? <laughs> oh, we should sure. have an email. We, I think we do. And I don't have it written down. All right. You can go to our website. Not a professional. No. You can go to our website, um, sfgrotto.org slash craft slash grottopod. It's a mouthful. It really is. Just go to SF Gro- uh, Writers Grotto. You know what? Skip all that and just follow us on Twitter. Oh, so much better. Grotto Pod. At the Grotto Pod. So the easy. The Grotto Pod. Facebook slash Grotto Pod. Back to the show. So you get to San Francisco. Yes. Are you writing fiction finally? You're not writing fiction. I am writing fiction. Actually, okay. I had finished a novel. Man, I was kind of stressed <laughs> out. There. I had finished a novel and. Well, first of all, I had an essay in a pretty influential 
anthology, believe it or not, there are such things. That I read. No, that's oh, ma- way before one. that. Oh. This is called Solo on Her Own Adventure. Oh. And it was about skiing as a kid. And a this is like the dream story writers. Pull up your chairs. I have a piece <laughs> in a small anthology. One day, I'm at work. I At this time, I was managing a private collection in Portland. Phone rings. I pick up the phone, and it's an editor from Random House. And she says, I've just read your essay. I loved it. And it says in your bio notes that you're working on a novel. How far along are you? And I say, I'm almost done. Total lie, because (laughs) I'm so excited. And she says, well, when do you think you could get me? uh, She said, hold on to it. Don't send it too early. Make sure it's ready. But I'd love to see it when it's ready. And I said, okay, six months. I'm going to have it in your hands. Hang up the phone. I'm not kidding you. Quit my job. I'm rich. It's going to happen. <laughs> this is so stupid. Quit my job. You're not alone. And furiously write the novel. Um, in the meantime, we have to move to San Francisco because Rick hates Portland. Oh, should I not oh, say geez, his name? Come on. Does, should I not say his name? I, it's up to I you. Know, it's redacted. too late now. Yeah, redacted. Um, whatever, that guy. And we, I mean, it's not like you couldn't find out. I always refer to my wife on all podcasts yes. and blogs as Sandra Bullock. She who shall not be named? Nope, Sandra Bullock. Okay. Uh, I'm going to call mine Roy. Okay, Roy. so Roy. <laughs> Roy and I are in San Francisco. It's all going well, and I feel like in a way I've made it. Right now I'm going to be a writer in San Francisco. Look at it's me. so awesome. I, again, did not use an expletive. So I'm in San Francisco. I... You're branching out to the literary I'm going to do some stuff. I'm at the rock climbing gym. I'm leading a climb. I reach up. I dislocate my shoulder. I have to go to the hospital. In the hospital, I find out I'm pregnant. And that's why my shoulder dislocated. And I'm going to be in a cat, like a slingy thing, for eight weeks until I get into the second trimester and they can do surgery. This is so much detail. Mm -hmm. The point is, I'm like, fine. I'm going to nail the novel, send it off. To make a very long and tedious story short, I finish the novel, I send it off, have the kid premature, never have the surgery, but it's okay because the Random House editor has my book and now my whole life is going to change. Approximately six weeks later, she gets back and says, not interested. That's it. That's it. And now I have a newborn kid and no money and no job. Oh, did you? uh, So (laughs) this is actually a really nice... uh, I won't call it a cautionary tale. It's just oh, a tale. Don't quit your job, friends. I mean, I had to quit anyway. I was moving, but really. But it's really just a tale. I mean, this is the sort of thing that happens to writers. So after mm-hmm. this this novel, um, first let's go double track here. This novel. Never you, never published. Agents, sending it to agents, trying to get you an agent. You know what? So here's the thing. My son was born very sick. He was premature. It took every ounce of my energy and attention to manage him, and I just couldn't write. I didn't write, actually, for a couple of years. You know, we've talked about, we've mentioned how, when you work from home, some days you can go through a day and feel like it was productive because you did three loads of laundry. Right. Oh, for sure. Multiply that by a million when you got the kid at home, right. too. Right. And we had no money. Roy is still in <laughs> <laughs> law school. I mean, it was a nightmare. I'm basically calling my parents. I am by I'm now. Su- I'm by now 30, and I'm calling my parents at the end of each month. Like, can you, can you send me some I'm money? I'm surprised you stayed in San Francisco because that would have driven me out. Because this is a terrible place to live it with no money. I don't know. I didn't know any better. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't know what to do. So at this time, where's the idea for uh, broad strokes? Um, it's always kind of in the back of my mind. In fact, at that very time, I remember the New York Times Magazine had a story about Linda Nochlin, who was a professor who ended up at the Institute, not when I was there, later, who's famous for having been one of the early sort of feminist art historians, and asking her, you know, where's the state of women in art history and women in art? And I showed it to my husband and I said, 
this is what's killing me. Like here I am with this baby and it's wonderful, but I should be in the New York Times talking about this. And he goes, he said, take note. Why? You haven't done anything. Oh, ouch. I know. But, I'm, there's, but I if, thought about it. It's, I thought about uh, it a lot. What did Jeff Tweedy say? There's a fortune inside my head. I know. So um, that sucked. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of went on like that. And then, you know, you know, San Francisco does not have very good public schools. Mm. I wanted to send my kids to a good school and was interested in Waldorf schools because my nieces and nephews in Portland had gone to a Waldorf school. I liked it. Arts are pretty central to that pedagogy. And then I found out that Waldorf high schools need art historians. I, and immediate, like literally found out there were Waldorf high schools, found out there was one in San Francisco, found out they needed an art historian and signed up for the teacher training and got a job. So in a way, problem solved. Yeah. But in another way, a a whole new problem. This raisin is going to dry up there on the windowsill if you don't. uh, Right. And as you know, Larry, it's very hard to teach in that way and write. It's impossible. It's really hard. So I did that for about seven years, got my kids well into school, um, started writing more and more. And then kind of what changed everything is I had a memoir piece. Well, I guess I should back up and say then Seal Press, who had originally published that anthology, said to me, oh, they did a reissue, a 10-year reissue of that anthology, and then said to me, do you have any other pieces like this? And I sent them just short things I had. And they said, we'd love to do a collection with you. So take note, writers. Ten years passed. Yeah. Ten years have passed. In the blink of an eye. We'd like to do a collection with you. And I'm like, oh, I'm saved. So I wrote some new pieces and sent them this collection. (laughs) But not yet. And then they got back to and they said, and then the editor who had contacted me said, yes, I love it. We're going to do it. And then she left for somewhere else and the new editor didn't want it. So I had these pieces sitting around, didn't know what to do, had taken some classes with Tom Jenks and Carol Edgarian at Narrative Magazine, sent them one of them. They published it in Narrative and that started my life again as a writer. As a writer. So one of those pieces ended up in Best American Sports Writing. Right. That was a couple of years later. But from that, so then I wrote that original piece and realized, oh, I have all these stories about growing up in Montana. I'm going to write a memoir. And this is a great thing for writers to hear because I've had a similar experience where I decided I was going to write about my son's bar mitzvah. And everyone loved it. And it's great. And you start feeling like... This is it, man. This is this is it. This is my. This I'm going to be the marmitzvah guy. There's that. You get that high. I got some great encouragement yeah. this yes, week, totally. and it is going to happen. And then the next yep. day, you're doing laundry again. Okay, I have to tell this part of the story. Okay, this is probably so boring for people, but yeah. So then, if you're easily bored. You know, go do something now. <laughs> Narrative took two more of those pieces, and one of those was chosen for best American sports writing. And I thought, this is it. I've gotten in a really good anthology. Best something. I've been buying these best somethings for years. Exactly. And my agent, I got contacted by a few agents. I met my agent from that publication. She loved the memoir. I finished it. She sent it out. She felt really confident about it. I felt great about it. Not one nibble. Mm -hmm. Nothing. And here's the part of the story that really matters, everybody. My beautiful agent. Can I say her name? Yeah. It's not like my husband. I can say. No, you can say her name. Danielle Svetkov said to me after about four or five months, I don't think it's going to sell. I've been working on it for three or four years. and Probably three. Yet, it will someday. 
Okay. Uh, you don't need to change it. We're not going to bring it back as something else. It's great the way it is. Just waiting for the atmosphere. Yes, exactly. To and what we need to do is sell a different book first. And that brought me to my knees of despair uh. because I had spent three years writing this book and had actually quit my job to write it. Um, helps to have a supportive spouse. Roy's doing a little better now. Roy's, at this point. Roy's much better now. Okay. Um, and. I thought she was crazy. How would I get a book? I haven't had a book deal yet. I'm you know, 47. And you, and you get impatient. It's like, no. Impatient. No 47. 47. I'm not impatient. I'm a nun <laughs> at this point. I'm. No one has more patience. Nice Catholic reference. I know. And uh, she basically introduced it. Well, no, there's a lunch that's going to happen at Chronicle Books. She says, go to the lunch and go with a few ideas in mind. And here comes and I literally and here comes broad strokes and I thought well I went looked at, went over looked at Chronicle Books I thought they have all these books on male artists they have nothing on women artists I've had this book in my mind for twenty or thirty years met a woman named Bridget Bridget Watson Payne who became my editor oh, said that to her the uh, thing yeah exactly the thing the party mm-hmm. and she was interested and it just went off so literally within weeks of hearing the memoir you've worked on that you thought was going to be a great success is not even going to be published. I had a book You got deal. something new in the hopper, which is crazy. Great. Yeah. Now we're actually starting to get short on time, okay. but if you can, I can understand why let's, um, let's just take people through some of the challenges, uh, as far as licensing went oh. for this particular book. So, uh, for the uninitiated, mm. those of you who haven't yet bought the book, right. You, I don't know what they're waiting prepare for. Prepare yourself for a scolding, but uh, the book includes several reproductions of yeah, artwork. Four for each artist. That couldn't have been easy to get. Actually, I didn't understand how hard it was going to be. when. Basically, when I got the book deal, my editor said to me, getting the reproduction rights is going to be tricky. Um, not th- And I felt like that she was saying, maybe we don't want to take that on. And I said, oh, I can do it. Uh-huh. Because one of my jobs at the Met had been oh, okay. to give so, rights and, and to find rights. And you're dealing mostly with estates here. But this is the problem, which I had not figured in, that the Met in the late 80s and early 90s didn't really have a contemporary collection. I was really only ever licensing old works. So licensing anything old is easy. Licensing anything from someone who has died within 70 years of today, you're dealing with the owner of the work, the estate, sometimes multiple levels of those things, and that became very tricky and stressful to do while I was writing the book because I had a pretty short time to write it. How long did you have? About a year. Okay. Um, so in a year, I had to write the book plus get all of the production <clears throat> rights. And when you started the book, did you have sort of a sense of how it was going to, what it was going to be? I mean, I guess to pitch it, you would have had to. Yeah. So, I mean, they said, oh, that sounds interesting. Give us a pitch. And I asked for, I think, three months or something because a book proposal is hard to write. And got a phone call while my daughter was in the emergency room saying, actually, we need it by the end of next week. (laughs) So, which was a blessing in disguise. I spent the whole, I did nothing that weekend, but pull out all these ideas that I'd had swimming around for 30 years and lay them out. Now, financially, though. Yeah. Is it hard to make the argument for breaking even when you've got to get all these rights? No. Well, I could not survive in San Francisco if I didn't have a partner because I made no money except for my advance, which was pretty modest for the yeah, year well, that I wrote You the saw book. Those, those stats that Connie brought in right. about what writers make. Right. So I think, I mean, I'm hopeful and I feel good that it's going to pay off in the end. 
and it will pay off, pay off, I hope, for my career. But in terms of actually financially having made any money so far, I really haven't. So it's actually not the culmination that your life has led to this point. It's a jumping off point almost. I hope it's a jumping off point. I really, I, I mean, I've waited for this moment and I've worked toward this moment my whole adult life. And I'm turning 50 this year, yeah, Larry. It, so It, it happens. Um, but I'm incredibly... It sucks, but it happens. Yeah, and I'm also... I also I'm not bitter. I'm grateful to have this opportunity. I'm super excited, and I'm really happy I didn't give up. Well, you know what would be cool for this book? I thought. Oh, oh, okay. That was cool, though, not interesting. Oh, that's true. Um, we were drinking. If it had a life as a textbook. I've had inquiries about that. Because. Um, but a lively textbook. That's what I was going to say. Not a dry textbook. Because it's very engaging. Right. I, do you know the book E.M. Gombrich's A Little History? I don't. It is used as a textbook quite often, uh, and it reminds me of Broad Strokes, and probably I was thinking about it unconsciously while I was writing it, and it's a kind of engaging history of the world, and Gombrich is famous uh, for writing um, a tome of art history, but this little history book is really where his fame is. Engaging, man. Yeah. Someone gave me, a, 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 as I have not mentioned on this podcast, but often mentioned on my other one, Is It Good for the Jews? Mm-hmm. I, I subscribed have, to that, too. Thank you. I have recently learned how to cook, and right. a friend got us this, it's not Thug Live, it's some like Thug cook Thug book. Kitchen. Thug Kitchen, yeah, which is pretty hilarious, which kind of makes the recipes go down a little easier. Because they're vegan. <laughs> no, they're not vegan. Oh, I thought they were. They're vegetarian, but okay. they're not vegan. Okay. That's, uh, I, yeah, I sound happier just hearing it's vegetarian. I can't eat any of them right now, of course, because right, they have like, pasta and stuff. And I'm, 30. On a, I'm on a don't eat diet. Um, what are you working on now besides promoting your book? Which is really something. You yes. know how people tell you before you have kids, oh, your whole life's going to change. You're not going to understand how much work it is. And you're like, yeah, yeah. How about it? It's true. Yeah, but you don't really get it until you have them. Right. It's like that. It's I'm a month out, and wow, it's a tsunami of stuff while I'm trying to write a book proposal for the next book. Which is? Well, I don't want to say too much, okay, but I will say that it's a dual biography of two 18th century women painters. Done in an engaging style. Correct. So in this one, will there be any of you in it, or is it just yes. a, a real? Okay. Mm-hmm. So this might turn out to be your thing. It might be my thing. Wasn't what you started out thinking you were going to do. Not at all. Although it's become more and more people's thing. Like I've noticed that these kinds of... Um, biographies, histories, or uh, there's a, a new book right now, The Lonely City, which is kind of a take on artists and their relationship with cities and urban life and the memoir of the writer the as well. The author's inserted into right. it, sort of like, like a new journalism for textbooks exactly. type of thing. Exactly. Or not textbooks, but for, I don't know. Biography. Biography, yeah. 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 I mean, I think about also Jeff Dyer's Out of Sheer Rage which is his kind of not really biography of D.H. Lawrence. Mm. And he's mostly in it himself. And I don't think it would be that level of in it. But part of it is also bringing history alive, why it matters right now. And one of the lessons of 18th century France is that women's rights can disappear immediately in a revolution. And women of power and substance and a lot of artistic um, chance or opportunity that can all go away. Hmm. And so, yeah. So timely. Unfortunately, possibly so. Well, I feel like we, we kind of gave broad strokes a short shrift here, but I'm glad. uh, But we talked a lot about me. Right. (laughs) Well, there's not really much to say except that it's so sassy and fun and you should really read it. It's sassy and fun and you should really read it. Uh, It was, was released on March 7th. Um, Assuming, let's pretend like it's the middle of March right now. Okay. You got any events? 
I do have events. Um, well, I have a really exciting event coming up April 13th, although these are all things in California, does it matter? Yeah. Um, Saba Sarah and Julie Lithkop-Hames, who is a New York Times bestselling writer, and Saba is a um, beautiful painter, are holding a salon in Palo Alto to promote the book on April 13th. Awesome. I'm going to be at the um, Hawaii Book and Music Festival the first week of May. That can't suck. No, I think that'll be good. Yeah. And at Folio Books in San Francisco on March 8th, which is International Women's Day. Fantastic. I'm also teaching a course at the Chautauqua Institute in August. In August. If anyone's interested in that. The week of August 7th, I believe. Fantastic. Uh, I know. Well, after this BQ, you have to go back to just being a co-host. Yeah, um, that's fine. But it's been great getting I your think story. That's easier. I think it's a universal story that most writers, if not all writers, writers who don't have immediate success, the can story of, of multiple from, failure. Well, it's just a story of it's just how it goes, man. It's just how it goes. But also realizing, looking back on my life, that it's been really fun, and yeah. part of that is because I stayed engaged with art and writing. And so I think going to law school is a mistake. I just want to say that. Unless you're going to be married to that person, in which case, thumbs <laughs> right, up. Right, it's awesome. Be an yeah. adjacent lawyer, not an actual lawyer. Correct. Uh, how can we follow you? Website, Twitter. Website, BridgetQuinnAuthor.com or BroadStrokesBook.com. Twitter, at BQuinterest. Right. Do you have to spell that? B Q U I N T E R E S T. Like Pinterest. And you can follow me at that Larry Rosen. And if you really can't get enough of me, you can listen to my other podcast, Is It Good for the Jews? You can find us at isitgoodforthejews.com. That wraps it up for this week's Grotto Pod BQ. Now that you're back to being a co-host and not yes. an interview subject, take us home. And now you'll know why I think this is an important outro. Okay. Read, write, and just keep working. 